Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, No Ma'am, That's Not History. We are living in a strange and interesting time, even as the LDS Church becomes more transparent about its history, including Joseph Smith's practice of polygamy, there is a growing number of people within the church or people who used to be members of the church, and by that I mean the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, who are arguing against the church's attempts to be more transparent. And specifically, what they're arguing about is that Joseph Smith did not, repeat, did not practice polygamy. This was a conspiracy that was placed upon Joseph Smith by ill-designing men and women who got together to accuse him of polygamy even though he was completely innocent of any such act or teaching. Those people are sometimes called the polygamy deniers. Now, that doesn't mean that they think that polygamy never happened because they certainly think that polygamy happened with Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball and a number of other people, both in Nauvoo as well as out west. But specifically, they deny the idea that Joseph Smith himself taught and practiced polygamy. So when I use the term polygamy denier in this podcast, that is what I mean. And what we're finding is that these polygamy deniers seem to be proliferating both inside the church and outside the church. And one of those people who is inside the church, at least for now, who is denying that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy is a lady named Michelle Stone. She has a podcast called 132 Problems with Polygamy. And when she says 132 problems, I think that what she's talking about specifically there is a reference to section 132, in which is set forth the commandment from God to Joseph Smith to practice polygamy. Of course, because they do not believe that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy, they do not believe that this was a real revelation that was really received, or at least claimed to be received, by Joseph Smith. No, he could not have possibly claimed to have received this because he didn't practice polygamy. It's very important that you set in mind at the outset your conclusion so that every single other piece of evidence that you look at can be sifted through the conclusion that you have already reached. And that is what I see in spades with the polygamy deniers. So to give you a brief rundown as to how we came to this podcast today, which is June 24th, 2023, that I'm recording this, is that a few weeks ago on Mormonism Live, we had a caller to the show named Matt, who claimed that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. They're everywhere. And Bill Reel responded to this person and said, okay, on the next week's show, I'm going to do some research. I'm going to find out what the best evidence is that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy, and we're going to have a show about it on Mormonism Live. And Bill Reel really was not familiar with the subject. I wasn't familiar with the subject, but he did a bunch of research. He probably did 40, 60 hours of research that week in preparation for the following Mormonism Live, where he and I set forth a great deal of evidence showing that Joseph Smith did, in fact, practice polygamy. And one of the main things that we wanted to do in that show was focus on contemporary evidence. In other words, evidence that exists in the historical record prior to the time that Joseph Smith died. Because, you see, the polygamy deniers immediately discount any evidence that comes about after Joseph Smith died as an attempt by the LDS Church led by Brigham Young now, who is, of course, practicing polygamy and wanting to link it back to Joseph Smith. The allegation is, 
is that the church then under Brigham Young is manufacturing and creating and adding to all of these historical documents so that they can attribute polygamy to Joseph Smith as the founder of the religion and the founder of polygamy to justify their continuing practice of polygamy out in Utah. So in order to avoid that obvious response from the polygamy deniers, we took the time to focus on the contemporary evidence that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. Well, after that happened, this lady named Michelle Stone did a podcast on her podcast, once again, that's 132 Problems with Polygamy, which was titled, One Polygamy Denier's Response to Bill Real, RFM, Maven, and Brian Hales. The Brian Hales was added there not because he was on our show, but because he, as an apologist for the church, also argues that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. He also put up another podcast dealing with this issue, close in time to the one we put up at Mormonism Live. And so Michelle Stone, or I'll call her Ms. Stone, in order to hopefully show appropriate respect, did a response podcast to what we had said. Now, this podcast by Ms. Stone is two and a half hours long. There are no guests. It is just Michelle Stone speaking about polygamy and attempting to respond to what it is that we said about polygamy. Now, I want you to know I'm not going to do a response to everything that Ms. Stone said in her two and a half hour podcast. Otherwise, I'd be here for seven and a half hours responding to everything she said. What I am going to do is respond to quite actually a rather large number of statements that she made in her two and a half hour podcast. I am not claiming that it is exhaustive, that it covers everything she said, but the main things I want to focus on are her comments on the evidence that we brought up on Mormonism Live. I have listened to her two and a half hour podcast three times now, all the way through. So I wanted to get a good sense and understanding of where it is that Ms. Stone is coming from. But in each and every situation where she attempts to respond to the evidence that we presented on our show, I find her response and her resolution of the difficulty that's raised by those pieces of contemporary evidence to be woefully inadequate. So the point of today's show is for me to respond to Ms. Stone's response to our evidence. So having set that up, let me give you a little bit of background on me and this whole subject of polygamy deniers. Now, I have known some people who deny that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. I've had discussions with them on the phone and in person, and I have never understood why it is that they insist that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. From my conversations with different people, it has been apparent to me that they are really not following the historical evidence. What they are doing is starting off with their conclusion firmly in mind that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. And this is a religious conviction on their part. They believe that polygamy is an abomination because it says so right there in the Book of Mormon, in the Book of Jacob. Polygamy is an abomination. Therefore, if Joseph Smith practiced polygamy, he would be practicing an abomination. He could not be a prophet of God. Therefore, Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. And once you have that conclusion firmly in mind, everything else will fall into place. All the evidence that sure looks like Joseph Smith was practicing polygamy becomes no evidence at all. And other bits and pieces which really do not establish that Joseph Smith was not practicing polygamy, those become the gospel. 
I have likened this in the past to those people who also believe that the Apollo 11 moon landing was a hoax because there are people out there who believe that as well. You could call them moon landing deniers. And these people, in the face of overwhelming evidence that back in the summer of 1969, three United States astronauts did actually land on the moon and deny that evidence. They find all sorts of creative ways in order to dispute that evidence. And then they come up with, I'm going to try and be charitable here, unlikely scenarios to explain why it is that this is a hoax and why it is that really the moon landing never took place at all. And one of the problems with these kinds of conspiracy theories is that the more evidence that you have to refute in order to support your position invariably leads to adding more and more people into this conspiracy to fake the moon landing. And by the time you're done, the conspiracy has to involve tens and hundreds of people in varying positions of power and authority, all of them invested in this moon landing hoax in order to pull off the conspiracy that must be taking place for the moon landing to be a hoax. Now, conspiracies do happen. They happen every day. There are even criminal statutes in every state of the union that are called conspiracy, conspiracy to commit a crime, where you agree with somebody else to commit an act which is criminal and one or more people of the conspiracy, of the people who are agreeing to do this, takes a substantial step in furtherance of that crime. That's called a conspiracy. So we know that conspiracies do happen. But what we also know is that conspiracies almost invariably break down because somebody blows the whistle. Somebody tells the truth about the conspiracy. Somebody who was involved in the conspiracy says, I can't do this anymore, and they're going to go public. And the more people who are involved in a conspiracy, the greater the likelihood is that that conspiracy is going to break down and one of those people is going to go public. I remember on an early episode of Radio Free Mormon, where at the website there is a comment section, which I'm not able to frequent that much anymore because I'm so busy doing all these other things, but I appreciate all the comments that are made there. But around five years ago, I'm thinking, there was a comment made because in the course of doing the Radio Free Mormon podcast, I will occasionally make reference to the fact that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. It's not the subject of the podcast, but it's something that I am making a point of as I go along. And invariably, when I do that, there will be somebody who will come along in the comments and say, why are you saying that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy? He did not practice polygamy. Joseph Smith fought against polygamy. And here's these books that you need to read so you can understand that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. And one of those people showed up and made a comment along those lines at my Radio Free Mormon homepage. And I thought, let me take a few minutes here and let me just explain to you why it is, in general terms, that I have difficulty being persuaded by the argument that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. And I'll get to a few of those thoughts as we go along in today's show. But I remember ending my comments with the statement that it has been my experience that a lot of times people who believe in the conspiracy that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy also believe in the conspiracy that the moon landing was a hoax. And the response, sure enough, as soon as I had said that from this person was, well, how do you know that it wasn't a hoax? And going on and on about how actually the Apollo 11 moon landing was a hoax. So my response to that was one line. I rest my case, Your Honor, because yes, he had proven my point for me. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who believes 
in the conspiracy theory that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy also believes in the conspiracy theory that the moon landing was a hoax. All I'm saying is that I think if you're looking at this as a Venn diagram, there's a whole lot of overlap between those two circles. Now, I have been aware that this debate has been going on out there for years, as I've mentioned. I have resisted the temptation to get involved in this debate in any degree of depth because my sense is from talking to individuals and learning more about why it is they believe what it is they believe that this is a bottomless pit or looked at with another metaphor, it is a bunch of rabbit trails. It's not just one rabbit trail going off into the woods. This is a hundred rabbit trails going off in all directions. And why is it that I want to spend my time and a lot of time at that going down each and every one of these rabbit holes to find out why it is that they think that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy in spite of the fact that the best historians in the world today on Mormonism, and I'm including faithful members and those who are not members of the church, such as Brent Metcalf and Dan Vogel, who are not members of the church anymore. And we've got on the other side, we have Brian Hales, who is a member of the church. These individuals know their stuff. They are very familiar with the documents, they have done original research, and they have all come to the same conclusion that yes, Joseph Smith did practice polygamy, and it's not even close. It's obvious. So if you're going to come along in the face of renowned scholars who have all, even from different perspectives, looking at the same evidence, come to the same conclusion, if you're going to take a position that says, no, they're absolutely 100% wrong on that, and I'm right, I'm going to be expecting you to produce a good deal of evidence in order to support your claims. Because what you're trying to do now is you're trying to controvert the accepted position of the scholars. Now, it is always possible that the accepted position of the scholars could be wrong. But you're going to have to come up with some pretty overwhelming evidence to convince me that they're wrong and that you're right. And I don't think that's an unreasonable position to take. At one time, one of my friends who believes that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy sent me a book arguing the same thing, that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. I'm not going to mention the name of the book. I'm not going to mention the name of the person who wrote the book. But I am going to tell you that I tried to read this book, and I only got 20 pages into it. And the reason why is, number one, I didn't want the book in the first place. I'm not interested in this subject. And number two, because the first 10 pages of the book, the author went on and on about how this author is totally unbiased, totally objective, does not have a dog in this fight, and therefore we can trust what this author says because they are not trying to argue a certain position, they're simply trying to follow the evidence. Believe it or not, that's what everybody says. Everybody except for Kerry Mulesteen, apparently, who actually said that he starts with the conclusion and then he filters all the evidence in light of the conclusion that he's already reached. The thing I want to give Kerry Mulestein credit for is actually saying out loud and honestly his methodology, because typically people who follow that methodology don't say that that's what they're doing. People who follow that methodology nevertheless say, no, we're unbiased. We're just following the evidence wherever it leads. And this is the conclusion that we've reached based upon the evidence. Well, that's what the author of this book said in the first 10 pages. And then when we got to the meat of the book, the next 10 pages, he's using language over and over again, which shows me he's anything but unbiased. He's totally in the tank for Joseph Smith not practicing polygamy and all the other people who were actually practicing polygamy and then putting it off on Joseph Smith, he describes in the worst possible terms. So it was very clear to me 
that in spite of his protestations to just following the evidence and being objective in the introduction, once he got past the introduction and into the meat of the book, it was clear that he was not objective. He was not following the evidence where it led. He was twisting the evidence to make it fit what he believed already. And once he did that, I realized I had no basis to trust any of the information that he's giving me because he's already signaled to me he's going to be giving it to me in a biased way. And he's going to be slanting things and spinning things and omitting things in order to support his conclusion. That's not a book I want to spend a lot of time reading. So now my plan is to go through a number of audio clips from Ms. Stone's podcast and explain why it is that I do not find her responses persuasive to me personally and also use the opportunity to maybe get an insight into the mind of the conspiracy theorists because they all approach their conspiracy in a similar way. So some of you might be saying, well, why should we listen to anything you have to say? You are not completely immersed in the subject. You don't know all of these things. You haven't read all of these books. So why should we listen to anything you have to say? Well, let me suggest in my defense that I bring something important to the table. I bring 33 years of experience as an attorney. My first eight years, I was with the prosecuting attorney's office. And the last 25 years, I have been in private practice. And this has given me a lot of experience dealing with witnesses, both my clients and other people, including police, including alleged victims, including other witnesses, and what they bring to the table as far as testimony and the ways that they can use in order to justify the conclusions that they have already reached or the conclusion that they want the jury to believe. And one of my main roles as an attorney is evaluating how the evidence supports or does not support those conclusions. Because while I am listening to all of this testimony and reviewing all this evidence in every particular case that I might be dealing with, I am also thinking of it from another perspective. I think of it from my client's perspective. I think of it from the law enforcement's perspective. I think of it from the witness's perspective. I have to think of things from the prosecutor's perspective, from the judge's perspective, but the most important perspective that I bring to the table is the jury's perspective because these are people who are supposed to be unbiased, impartial. They have no dog in the fight and they are supposed to make a determination based upon the evidence that they hear. And that is the perspective that I'm going to try and bring to the discussion tonight, that of an objective, unbiased person. By the way, I don't even have to do that much to put on an objective hat and pretend like I'm a member of the jury in tonight's show because I am an unbiased, objective person when it comes to the issue of whether Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. Everybody's got biases. I understand that. But everybody also has subjects, and it's probably the vast majority of subjects which they may encounter from day to day that they have no bias about. From my point of view, I don't care whether Joseph Smith practiced polygamy or not. It makes no difference to me and my position relative to the church, relative to God, relative to my religion, or anything else. It doesn't matter to me. What I'm interested in is finding out what the evidence is and trying to follow that evidence to its most likely conclusion. I understand that we're never going to know 100% one way or the other, but the study of history isn't coming to an absolute 100% conclusion. That's the job of religion. 
The job of history is to find out what is the most likely thing that happened. And something may be more likely or less likely. But it's the business of religion to come up with absolute certitude. And that is something that history does not deal with. So having said all of that at the outset, let's get to some clips from Ms. Stone and her podcast, One Polygamy Denier's Response, to Bill Real, RFM, Maven, and Brian Hales. The first thing she's going to respond to has to do with Doctrine and Covenants section 101 and verse 4 and 5. And the reason she's going to deal with that is because this is a section that is not in the current Doctrine and Covenants. It was in the original Doctrine and Covenants, which came off the press in 1835, but it was subsequently taken out of the Doctrine and Covenants. So if you go to your Doctrine and Covenants today and look up section 101, it's not going to be this section 101 because it's no longer in the Doctrine and Covenants. This was the church's statement on marriage. And here is what Ms. Stone has to say about this particular section. So we'll get there. But this, I want to give one example of like the congruence between these two groups that I just find amazing. Um, Some of you will remember that when Brian Hales was on my podcast, I brought up Doctrine and Covenants 101, the one that was removed from the Doctrine and Covenants in um, 1876 when Section 132 was added, right? And when I read it, inasmuch as this as the as this Church of Christ has been reproached with the crime of fornication and polygamy, we believe that one man should have one wife and one woman, but one husband, in, except in the case of death. Brian pointed out that there's kind of some coded language possibly in there, that it says the that but is like this magical but that changes the meaning. So when um, when it says. We believe that one man should have one wife and one woman but one husband. It means that saying you should have one wife doesn't really mean one wife. You have to say but to make it really mean one. So that struck me as, I can't even explain it well because it's so silly in my mind. It's so ridiculous. And when Brian told me that, I, I just was like, Wow, wow. And to my amazement, RFM, who I generally really like and respect, no no hate RFM, but really, really made this point. It astonished me. And like one of my favorite um, comments that someone made is, if I tell my child, you can have one cookie. You know, if my children are begging, please, can we have cookies? You can have one cookie. I really mean, you can have at least one cookie. You can have all the cookies. I have to say, you can have but one cookie (laughs) in order to make myself clear. I think what I probably would need to do is tell my sons, you can have one cookie and tell my daughters, you can have but one cookie. And I'm sure they would all know exactly what I mean, right? Like that is uh, like, they agree on that. That is shocking to me and amazing and is an example of how deep I see this desperation to try to make these things say what they don't say in order to paint a picture that I think we will see is shadows of camels, not actual camels, if we get into it. So a couple of things I want to say about Ms. Stone's response to this issue of section 101. The first thing and the main point that I had made and the point that she does not address at all is this. Section 101 says Inasmuch as the church has been reproached with the crimes of fornication and polygamy, 
We know that as of 1835, when this Doctrine and Covenants with this Section 101 came off the press, those words were in it. And my question is, why is it as early as 1835 is the church being accused of practicing polygamy? What is going on there, and why is it that Joseph Smith feels that these allegations are serious enough and important enough and apparently have enough traction that he wants to issue a public and formal denial of those allegations and in a formal publication called the Doctrine and Covenants? This is very early on in the history of the church. It's only been organized for five years, and yet there are already accusations that church members are practicing polygamy. This is the main point that I wanted to make from this. Now, to be clear, just an accusation doesn't necessarily mean anything. It means that there's an accusation that's being made. But believe me, as a defense attorney, I recognize better perhaps than other people that an accusation is just an accusation. I want to see what the evidence is in support of the accusation. Well, we don't have the evidence here, but I will say this much. If this accusation had been made, for instance, against the Jehovah's Witnesses, who have no history of ever having practiced polygamy, all right, they may have their problems as well as the next religion, but one of their problems is not practicing polygamy. So let's say that sometime five years after Charles Taze Russell creates the Jehovah's Witnesses or the religion and Bible study group that ended up becoming the Jehovah's Witnesses. Let's say that five years after that happens, somebody out there accuses Charles Taze Russell of practicing polygamy. And let's say that the history of the Jehovah's Witnesses continues the way it did historically from then to the present. There's no polygamy that ever surfaces in the church. I would be much more inclined to discount that allegation because there's nothing that happens historically within the Jehovah's Witnesses that would lend any credence to that allegation. But when that same allegation is being made less than five years after Joseph Smith organizes and establishes the LDS Church, and then the LDS Church goes on to have its very much historical practice of polygamy, then I have to look at those allegations in a different light. In other words, it's a question of smoke and fire. The smoke being the allegation, the fire being the actual practice. If you have the smoke of the allegation against the Jehovah's Witnesses who have no fire, then it looks like smoke. But if you have the same allegation, the smoke against the LDS people early on, and then we know historically that they did end up practicing polygamy all over the place. In fact, that is the main thing that people who are not members of the church think of when they hear the word Mormon, they think of polygamy, right? So if you have a situation like this where you do have smoke and then there's not just fire, there's a roaring conflagration of polygamy and Mormonism, then I've got to look at that allegation from 1835, which is being responded to by Section 101. I've got to look at that differently. And I've got to look at that as smoke that probably is coming from the fire as opposed to smoke existing without a fire in my Jehovah's Witnesses example. Ms. Stone does not seem to understand that main point which I was striving to make on the basis of this section 101. Instead, I did say as well that there were other people who argued that the use of the word but in this particular verse, this denial verse of polygamy, could have been put in there to give plausible deniability to the actual practice because what it says is that a man may have one wife and a woman but one husband. 
I did not put a lot of weight on it. I did say it as more of a passing observation. And indeed, this kind of use of language is something that's been endemic in the LDS church since its inception, and it continues on today with its top leadership, saying things in one way in order to try and be understood a certain way, but using language that doesn't actually say that explicitly so that if called upon it, then they have a fallback position of plausible deniability and they can say, well, no, that's not what I meant. That's not what I said. Actually, I meant something else. It's the age-old question of equivocation that I'm talking about. So I simply mentioned it as a possibility that the author of section 101 could be presenting as denying that any polygamy is going on, but then using language that gives plausible deniability to say that a husband may have one wife, but a woman may have but one husband. Or in other words, only one husband. Why is the only only in front of the one husband for the wife and not in front of the one wife for the husband? And then Michelle goes on to use this example of a mother giving her children cookies from the cookie jar and she wants to tell them that they can only have one so she says you can have one cookie but she doesn't have to say you can have only one or but one cookie in order to make her message clear well that is understanding my analogy from exactly the wrong end because i'm not talking about it from the position of a mother with cookies where she's trying to make it clear to her children what it is that they can have, that they can have only one cookie. I'm looking at it from the position of the kids who are taking the cookies because I will guarantee you that even at a young age, this type of equivocation goes on. And the kid could have the mother say, you can have one cookie. And then the mother comes back the next day and all the cookies from the cookie jar are gone. And she says, little Johnny, where are the cookies? And he says, well, I ate them. And the mother says, I told you you could have one cookie. And he says, well, yeah, I did have one cookie. And then I had another one. And then I had another one. And before I knew it, they were all gone. You see how that works? But if the mother had said, you can only have one cookie, Johnny, then she has made it specific enough and clear enough to where he can't use that language against her to do what it is he wants to do, which is to eat all the cookies without technically violating the direction she gave him at the beginning. So that's why I think she's missing the mark on my argument here. And it's not a strong argument. It's more of a passing observation. But that is why I think that Ms. Stone misses the mark when she responds to that observation about the language used in former section 101. Let's go on to something else that she has to say about polygamy, because from Ms. Stone's point of view, the number one evidence that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy is that he has no children from polygamous marriages. Let's play the tape. The number one, I'm sure you can guess, is no children. There are no children from Joseph with anybody than Emma. Let me, I'm going to, I want to do an entire episode on this, but um, just really quickly again to try to spell it out. Polygamist leaders have many children with many wives. It follows the pattern, right? The, in the polygamist cults, David Koresh, um, Father Yod, then, you know, we have Warren Jeffs, Brigham Young, and every single other polygamist leader. They all have many, many children. And 
So we can see that Ms. Stone's primary objection to the idea that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy is that he has no identified children from any of his polygamous unions. Now, this seems to overlook the fact that the practice of polygamy in Nauvoo was very secret. It was supposed to be hidden. It was supposed to be kept from the eyes of the authorities. And in fact, it was supposed to be kept from the eyes of the majority of members of the church who were gathered there in Nauvoo. This knowledge was supposed to be restricted to a limited number of people who were the elite and the closest to Joseph Smith and the people that he thought he could trust. So in a situation like this, if you have a polygamous union and you have a baby that results from that polygamous union, that's going to be a really bad thing. That's going to have the potential of blowing the lid on this entire practice. So in Nauvoo, during Joseph Smith's lifetime, the practice of polygamy was obviously done with an eye toward not having any children. And every effort would be made in order to avoid that happening. Efforts would be made to avoid conception. Efforts would be made, even if a baby were accidentally conceived, to abort the baby. And contraception and abortions are things that have been going on in this world for thousands of years. It would be a mistake to look back to the 1840s and the 1830s in the United States of America and just think that because that's a long time ago, they had no practices of contraception and they had no ways of aborting children who were conceived. I had also brought up the idea that if Joseph Smith has 33 wives, and we can only approximate the number because once again, it was a secret practice. But if Joseph Smith had, as most historians agree, in the neighborhood of 33 wives, it would make it easier to have sex with a wife who is not able to conceive at that particular point in her cycle. And if you've got 33 women and they're not living together, then they're going to have different cycles. And a person such as Joseph Smith could certainly take advantage of those cycles in order to avoid having any children conceived. But another point I think that can be made here is that polygamy deniers, such as Miss Stone, believe that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy, but these ne'er-do-wells, Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, other people, were indeed practicing polygamy during those Nauvoo years while Joseph Smith was alive. So if that is the case, that Joseph Smith was not practicing polygamy, but Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball and a number of other high-ranking church officials were practicing polygamy during this time period, where are their children? that were produced from their polygamous marriages. In other words, Brigham Young, did he have any polygamous children during Joseph Smith's lifetime? Did Heber C. Kimball have any polygamous children during Joseph Smith's lifetime? And if they were having polygamous relationships, sexual relationships with polygamous wives that did not produce children during Joseph Smith's lifetime, how is it that Joseph Smith, not having any children, through polygamous relationships, is a proof that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. In other words, if you say that having no children is the absolute evidence of no polygamy, then apparently Heber C. Kimball and Brigham Young and others were not practicing polygamy either during Joseph Smith's lifetime, which we can prove by the fact they had no children. This is where I think that this evidence which Ms. Stone thinks is the number one crowning evidence that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy becomes a complete wash. It doesn't prove anything one way or the other. 
The next clip we're going to go to is where Ms. Stone talks about Joseph Smith's relationship with Emma and that he was so loving and kind and solicitous to Emma and his feelings on marriage as he expressed them were so monogamous that he could not possibly have practiced plural marriage. Okay, I'm going to go on. I think I have something like seven points. I I don't know how much I'll talk. I'm trying to hurry. So the second one is the relationship between Joseph and Emma. And I will add to that Emma's calling as the Relief Society president. Having introduced this subject, Ms. Stone goes on to explain why she thinks this is evidence that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. And so um, I think that to believe that Joseph was a polygamist, you have to disregard everything we know from Joseph and Emma themselves and believe all of these crazy, insane stories that were told by Brigham Young once they were in Utah about Emma being basically a crazy person, Emma trying to murder Joseph, literally (laughs) poisoning him and trying to have him be killed by the mob, Emma pushing Eliza down the stairs, Emma, all of these just crazy stories that do not fit in at all with anything we know of Emma. So here Ms. Stone wants to paint Emma Smith as completely two-dimensional. She is only good. She never has a bad day. She never loses her temper as anybody in Emma's position with Joseph Smith practicing polygamy might actually do. But no, that's off the table because that is not the conclusion that is to be reached. Any story told about Emma that supports polygamy must be discounted and disregarded at the outset. It's also important to point out what's going on here with Ms. Stone's reasoning. And what she says is, there is nothing that we know about Emma and Joseph that would support any of these stories. Well, except for these stories themselves. But you see, any story or any account or anything that supports these stories is already discounted at the outset. They are not even on the table as evidence. So what she ends up saying is that once I've discounted all the evidence that these stories are true, then she feels completely comfortable in saying there's no evidence that any of these stories are true. Well, except for the evidence that we've already discounted at the outset. And she's going to do the same thing with Joseph Smith. Once she's discounted all the evidence that Joseph Smith taught polygamy, she's going to feel completely free and apparently completely ingenuous in saying the same thing about Joseph Smith. And then number three, all of Joseph's words, his entire body of of um, what he produced, right? All of the scriptures that he either revealed or received through um, translated or created, composed, whatever your perspective is, all of the revelations that he either received or made up, whichever your perspective is, are solidly, solidly opposed to polygamy, profoundly opposed to polygamy. So you can see that what she's saying is that once we take all the revelations, such as section 132, off the table because we've already eliminated that from consideration. And any other sayings or any other teachings or any other things that Joseph Smith did that are in line with his practicing polygamy, once we take those off the table at the beginning, now Ms. Stone can say that there's nothing that Joseph Smith ever said or did or received as revelation that supports the practice of polygamy. This is quintessential conspiracy theorist behavior. Now, Ms. Stone spent the first half hour of her two and a half hour podcast as a sort of introduction by talking about different glasses. She has two different glasses. One's a pair of sunglasses. Another is a pair of not sunglasses. They're just regular glasses with clear lenses. And she likens one pair of glasses to those who are 
polygamy believers, people that believe that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy, and the other pair of glasses are for those who don't believe that he practiced polygamy. She calls them polygamy glasses and monogamy glasses, and she says that people who wear polygamy glasses see polygamy everywhere in the historical record, and those who wear the monogamy glasses see monogamy everywhere in the church history. What Ms. Stone fails to account for anywhere in her introduction or anywhere in the two-and-a-half-hour podcast is the much larger group of people who aren't wearing any glasses in this discussion. And I include myself in that group. I'm not wearing polygamy glasses. I'm not looking for polygamy. I'm not trying to force polygamy into the historical record. On the other hand, I am not like Ms. Stone trying to find monogamy everywhere and forcing monogamy into the historical record. I am simply looking at the historical record and trying to see what it is that is most likely to have happened. And if it's not clear by now, I think the historical record is very clear that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. Is it 100%? No. In my opinion, nothing is 100% in history. Is it extremely likely? Oh yeah, it's extremely likely. Like we're talking over the 90th percentile of likelihood. But now at this point in her podcast, Ms. Stone incorrectly accuses me of having polygamy glasses on. And by that, she means that I am out there to find anything bad I possibly can about Joseph Smith. And she actually raises an example of this. And it's an example that is completely 100% wrong. Play the tape. Uh, one example, um, Mormon discussions brought up the Johnson farm tarring and feathering and how the Johnson boys that were responsible for that claimed that there had been sexual impropriety. And I just find that ridiculous to just assume that's evidence, right? That's like so polygamy lenses. Because to me, when you are going to beat someone and tar and feather them, you're going to come up with every excuse you possibly can against them. And I find myself wondering, Sidney Rigdon was also beat and tarred and feathered. He was unconscious. And what was he also guilty of sexual propriety? Like he deserved it as well? Is that the point we're trying to make? Now, Miss Stone might have a point if indeed I had made that argument or if Bill Real had made that argument. Ms. Stone is aware of the fact that on Mormonism Live a number of months ago, we did do an episode on the tarring and feathering of Joseph Smith and the allegations that were surrounding that incident, claiming that Joseph Smith was being tarred and feathered and attempted to be castrated because of sexual improprieties between Joseph Smith and Nancy Miranda Johnson. And what we did was we looked at all the evidence that we could find that dealt with the issue. We went through it piece by piece on the show. And on that show, at the end of the show, both Bill Real and I, yours truly, Radio Free Mormon, came to the conclusion that that is most likely to not have happened. In other words, yes, Joseph Smith was tarred and feathered, but based upon the evidence and the historical record and our evaluation of it, we determined that it was not likely that it was because Joseph Smith had had sexual improprieties with Nancy Miranda Johnson. So before Ms. Stone makes that claim, she should probably listen to the episode herself, or if she did listen to it, listen to it all the way to the end where she can find out that that is not the conclusion we came to. And I once again want to promote this as Exhibit A on the fact that I and Bill Real follow the evidence. We are not people who are out here to try and accuse Joseph Smith and believe every bad thing that was ever said about Joseph Smith. 
We are here to look at the historical record and make a determination as best we can using the tools that we have to determine whether that story is likely or whether it is not likely. And once again, in the case of the attempted castration, and I'm putting that in air quotes, of Joseph Smith for sexual improprieties, we came down on the side that that was most likely not correct. And these are the same tools that I and Bill Real are using when it comes to the subject of Joseph Smith's polygamy. If he did not practice polygamy, or if it's unlikely that he practiced polygamy based upon the historical evidence, that's where we're going to come down. But we don't come down there. And it's not because we are bound and determined to believe and prove every single negative thing that's ever been said about Joseph Smith. It's because that's where the evidence leads us. And yet, Miss Stone is going to go on and say that just because other religions were practicing polygamy in the day of Joseph Smith, that it would be very natural to make up a false allegation that Joseph Smith was practicing polygamy in order to smear him. So in other words, that line of argument boils down to, because other people were practicing polygamy, Joseph Smith was not practicing polygamy, even when other people claimed he was practicing polygamy. This is the way the conspiracy theorists mind works. Strangely use section 101 as evidence against Joseph. Like they say there was something in the air. Like these rumors all are therefore justified. And I also think that's insane. We know that at this time there were many, isn't it Lawrence Foster that wrote the book um, Religion and Sexuality? I can't remember what it's called, but we know the Cochranites, the Oneida community, the Shakers went the opposite direction. There were lots of groups playing with marriage and sex and relationships. It was kind of like I've heard it described as similar to the 60s, the hippies, right? So that would be a very apt, easy, and logical accusation to make against a religious leader that you hated at this time period, right? It's not, it's strange to take it as evidence. We need stronger evidence than that, I would say. And actually, when Ms. Stone says we need stronger evidence than that, that's kind of a chimera, because really, she's going to encounter much stronger evidence than that. And she's not going to follow the evidence where it leads. No, she's going to refute the evidence in any way she possibly can. Logical or not, and mostly not. The next issue she deals with is one that we did not bring up on the Mormonism Live show, which was the pamphlet titled The Peacemaker, which was written or published in Nauvoo, back in the 1840s during Joseph Smith's lifetime. We know it was published during Joseph Smith's lifetime because Joseph Smith himself wrote a brief article for publication in the LDS newspaper regarding the publication of this pamphlet and attempting to distance himself from this pamphlet. Now, the pamphlet itself sets forth the reasons for why it is that polygamy is appropriate and should be practiced. And my personal belief is, why is it that the peacemaker would be written and published by Joseph Smith in Nauvoo at the same time he's trying his darndest to keep polygamy a secret. That strikes me as strange. So my first inclination is to think that Joseph Smith probably did not have anything to do with writing that pamphlet. Yet it's possible, but it's unlikely. I mean, stranger things have happened. No matter how strange something is, you can always say stranger things have happened. And yet it is this brief article that is acknowledged and written by Joseph Smith, and we know it was written by him, we know it was written in the paper, and we know the date the paper was published, so it can't be written back into the record. What she does with this statement by Joseph Smith, which she reads, is interesting. 
Play the tape. So let's go into a couple of these things. This first one is a little pamphlet called The Peacemaker. And um, most people who argue that Joseph absolutely was a polygamist just completely ignore this and throw it off and say it doesn't matter at all. It actually matters a lot. Let's look at it. It was printed, as it says very prominently on the front cover, in Nauvoo, um, Illinois by J. Smith Printer, 1842, right? I will say I didn't know this. didn't realize this until after I had done some investigation and learned some things about it. I haven't found any other pamphlet or book that has the printer published that prominently on the front cover. That seems unique to me, Um, right? Maybe a little suspicious. A couple of things I want to point out about this. First of all, Now, notice that the first thing to do is to say that she considers it suspicious that the name of the printer, J. Smith, in The Peacemaker, would be put on the front cover because she doesn't know of any other pamphlet where it displays the printer's name so prominently on the front page. Well, I haven't done an exhaustive research of all the pamphlets that were written in and around Nauvoo during the relevant time period, but I do have a replica of the original 1830 Book of Mormon here before me. And of course, the cover of a book doesn't have the name on it. The name here is on the spine of the book. But if we open it up to the very first page that has any writing on it, we find it is the title page, The Book of Mormon, an account written by the hand of Mormon upon plates taken from the plates of Nephi. It then has the two big paragraphs that we know occur on that page. And underneath that, it says, By Joseph Smith, Jr., author and proprietor. And right underneath that, it is displayed prominently the words Palmyra, colon, and under that it says printed by E.B. Grandin for the author, 1830. So I can find an example here in the original 1830 copy of the Book of Mormon where the name of the publisher is prominently displayed on the first page. So it didn't take me a lot of time to find an example that would controvert Ms. Stone's idea that having the name of the publisher prominently displayed on the first page would not happen, would be unlikely to happen, and in her mind, it is suspicious. Is it similarly suspicious, I would have to ask, to have the name of E.B. Grandin published as the publisher of the Book of Mormon on the first page? She goes on now. It's awful, terrible. When I read it, I read it when I still was kind of with my, you know, I guess when I was kind of going back and forth is when I read that one. And I, um... I, it was one that put the polygamy lenses back on me solidly because I was like, how can people claim that Joseph wasn't a polygamist when he printed this? But then I read it and it was awful. It's so bad. Like, I, I just kept thinking, okay, Joseph was a polygamist and he was, you know, a bad guy in all of these ways, but he wasn't stupid. Like, he wasn't this stupid. <laughs> so it didn't make a lot of sense to me. But notice the methodology, if I can call it that. Notice the methodology of subjectivity in so much of what Ms. Stone has to say. She's read The Peacemaker. She thinks it's bad. It's really bad. Joseph Smith would never have written anything really bad like The Peacemaker is. So number one, subjectivity. She thinks The Peacemaker is bad. Number two, subjectivity. She thinks that Joseph Smith is good. And therefore, the subjective conclusion to both of those subjective premises is that Joseph Smith would not have written The Peacemaker. It's all completely subjective, at least this point of her argument is. The same thing with it being stupid. Well, it's stupid in some way. She doesn't define why it's stupid. Maybe she means the same reason I think it's stupid. Why are you publishing something if you're trying to keep it a secret? I think that actually has some merit. 
But she says Joseph Smith would never have done anything. That's stupid. Why does she think that? People do stupid things all the time. Smart people do stupid things all the time. Incredibly intelligent people do stupid things all the time. So even if a person is smart, it does not mean that they are not going to occasionally do something very stupid. And this could be a classic example of that very thing. The very fact that she subjectively thinks that Joseph Smith was smart and therefore would not do anything as stupid as publish the Peacemaker pamphlet doesn't show anything about history. It simply shows that she is subjective all the way through her argument. She goes to another point now. Um, I actually imagined my surprise when I found out that December 1st, 1842, this is what a notice that Joseph printed in the Times and Seasons. There has been a book printed at my office a short time since written by Edney H. Jacobs on marriage without my knowledge. And had I been appraised of it, I should not have printed it. Not that I am opposed to any man enjoying his privileges, but I do not wish to have my name associated with, with the authors of in such an unmeaning rigmarole of non sense, fo folly, and trash. Joseph Smith. <laughs> so so Miss Stone does find that statement by Joseph Smith, and she reads it in its entirety. The first thing I notice about this statement by Joseph Smith is that at no place does he actually deny believing and practicing polygamy. This is the perfect opportunity for him to deny it, but he doesn't. He simply says, it was published without his knowledge, and if he had been asked to have his name attached to it, he wouldn't have because it's so silly. He criticizes the writing, but he doesn't criticize or deny the content. That is the first thing that strikes me as an attorney with 33 years of experience. The next thing is that this article in the newspaper, interestingly, proves that this pamphlet was published during Joseph Smith's lifetime. If it were not for this article in the newspaper written by Joseph Smith about the pamphlet, the polygamy deniers would likely have claimed that perhaps this pamphlet was printed up later and then given an earlier date and J. Smith put on it even after Joseph Smith was dead in order to link Joseph Smith with polygamy. But the polygamy deniers cannot go there because of the article the brief article, the brief statement by Joseph Smith that was published in the Times and Seasons. So we know that it was contemporary with Joseph Smith. We know that this was not a later production. And therefore, because the polygamy deniers, including Ms. Stone, cannot go there, she simply wants to say that this is a denial. So if Joseph Smith denies it, which it's not a denial, it's a non-denial denial, if you know what I mean. Because Joseph Smith quote-unquote denies it, therefore, Joseph Smith didn't do it. You see, here's how the polygamy deniers handle the evidence. Everything that Joseph Smith says that supports our understanding that he did not practice polygamy is gospel. It is gold. It is absolutely true. Why? Because he said it. We don't need anything more than that. And anything that anybody other than Joseph Smith says that links Joseph Smith to polygamy, that's a lie. And we know it's a lie because it contradicts our conclusion our religious belief that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. It's very easy to deal with evidence when you live in this world. All you have to do is deny the stuff that contradicts your theory and believe the stuff that supports it. And lastly, I think it's interesting that once again, Ms. Stone doesn't seem to be curious 
about the part of this document, and by that I mean the part that was published in the newspaper by Joseph Smith, the part of the document that I find the most interesting. It's like section 101, where she did not seem to pick up at all on the fact that there had to be allegations of polygamy in order for there to be a public denial of the allegations. And why are those allegations happening so early? Where are they coming from? And how does that fit into the overall story of Mormonism and polygamy? There's no curiosity about that on her part, at least not in this podcast. And that's all I can go off of. And that's what I'm responding to. But similarly, in the short, brief statement by Joseph Smith in The Times and Seasons, she is completely incurious about his statement that he did not know about the publication of this pamphlet. And then he says, although I am not opposed to any man enjoying his privileges. What the heck does Joseph Smith mean by that? That he's not opposed to any man enjoying his privileges, especially in the context of a publication promoting polygamy. She has no interest in that. Now, it's possible, I suppose, that he could mean that he thinks that a man should be able to enjoy his privileges by printing whatever balderdash he wants, possibly. But to me, it seems at least equally as likely that what he's talking about, that he's not opposed to any man enjoying his privileges insofar as it applies to having more wives than one. Remember, Joseph Smith is publishing this for two audiences. It's in the newspaper. Everybody's going to read it. And he has to couch it in such a way as to speak to those who are practicing polygamy, who will understand it one way, and to those who are not practicing polygamy and don't even know that Joseph Smith's practicing polygamy because it's such a secret, and they will understand it another way. I want to play this once again. I'll play the clip where Ms. Stone reads this brief article so you can hear what it is I'm saying. There has been a book printed at my office a short time since written by Udney H. Jacobs on marriage without my knowledge. And had I been appraised of it, I should not have printed it. Not that I am opposed to any man enjoying his privileges, but I do not wish to have my name associated with, with the authors of in such an unmeaning rigmarole of nonsense, fo folly, and trash. Joseph Smith. <laughs> so... So this non-denial denial published as a notice in the Times and Season by Joseph Smith sounds somewhat similar to the non-denial denial given by John Taylor after Joseph Smith's death and while John Taylor was in Europe on a mission where he had a debate with several other clergymen. And in the process of that debate, John Taylor was accused of practicing polygamy, or at least that the Mormon church was practicing polygamy. At that time, John Taylor gave a famous non-denial denial. He said that it was horrible, it was atrocious, these allegations that these people were making, and then he referred them to Section 101 for the church's official stance on polygamy, which was, of course, that the church doesn't practice polygamy because monogamy is the rule and a man can have one wife and a woman may have but one husband. So, what he does is he doesn't deny it. By the way, he knows the church is practicing polygamy. He even has multiple plural wives back home while he's saying this, John Taylor does. And yet, he does a non-denial denial by first off disparaging the allegation, calling it a bunch of nonsense, and then going to a document in the Doctrine and Covenants, which he knows is not true, at least not have taken at face value. He goes to that and reads it in order to give the impression to his audience that no, the Mormons are not practicing polygamy, even though they are, and he's not practicing polygamy, 
even though he is. This is the kind of thing that Joseph Smith's notice in the Times and Seasons, which was read by Ms. Stone, reminds me of. He never denies it. He just mocks it. He says that he wasn't aware of it, and if he had been aware of it, he wouldn't have published such a bunch of nonsense. This is the perfect opportunity for him to say, I do not practice polygamy. I do not teach polygamy. That teaching is an abomination before the Lord, just like it says in the Book of Mormon, but he doesn't say it. And my question is, why not? And once again, what the heck does he mean by, I think that every man should enjoy his privileges? Just wondering. Okay, now we get to another place where Ms. Stone shows her bias. That everything that Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith, and she will quote them rather extensively, what they have to say about marriage and the sanctity of marriage and how important it is for a man to stay with his wife and all this other stuff, which she will read from statements that they made, those are absolutely true and those absolutely represent from Ms. Stone's perspective what it is that Hiram and Joseph mean. But then she will seamlessly segue into a sermon that she reads from Brigham Young in which she's going to say Brigham Young doesn't mean what he's saying. I mean, really, she'll break in occasionally to say, well, of course, Brigham Young doesn't really mean this. He's saying this just to give a false impression about what he really believes. And the context in which Ms. Stone is doing this is to talk about how Hiram and Joseph talk about the sanctity of marriage and monogamy and compare it to how Brigham Young talks about polygamy and compare those two and show that they're completely different from each other. The main point that I'm trying to make here is that she will accept everything that Joseph and Hiram Smith say on the subject as absolutely representing what they believe. But when Brigham Young says things on the subject, he's being deceitful. He's the only one who's capable of trying to say things that don't really reflect what it is he believes in his heart and saying those things for political reasons. Play the tape. Point number six is the known character of what I will call the polygamy conspirators versus what I can find of the character of Joseph and Hiram Smith and Emma Smith from their own words, scriptures, letters, actions, etc. Like just going on, it paints a very different picture. She will now go on to give some examples of this. I'm not going to play the entire audio clip because it gets very lengthy. I'm just going to play representative samples to try and make my point. But I do encourage everyone who's interested in this subject to go and listen to Ms. Stone's podcast in all of its two and a half hours of glory to find out what it is she actually said and the context in which she said it to make sure that I am representing her correctly. Now she goes on with some examples. They seem to really honor the sanctity and union of marriage. And then another thing, um, this is a letter that um, I have to thank those really quickly who have sent me things. I've been working on this. I haven't had time. You probably can tell how sleep deprived I am. I'm trying to stay awake to finish. So I have I have enlisted my friends to say, can you please send me this? Can you please send me this? Because I just didn't have time to find all the resources. So I want to thank all of you who helped me. You know who you are and I appreciate it so much. So this was sent to me by a friend, Whitney. Thank you. And um, um, it's the letter that Joseph and Hiram wrote to Parley Pratt to give to all of the saints in Europe and abroad. And it is basically, well, it's actually really important for a number of reasons. I will put the link in the descriptions. I think everyone should read it because it has a lot of important things to share. I'm just going to read little snippets of it. Whereas in times past, persons have been permitted to gather with the saints at Nauvoo in North America, such as husbands leaving their wives and children behind, describe situations, wives leaving their children, husbands 
husband's leaving. You know, it, it goes into that a bit. Um, talks about a spouse leaving their other spouse because they are an unbeliever. Then it says, all this kind of proceedings we consider to be an error and for the want of proper information and the same should be taught to all the saints. And Miss Stone will go on and quote from Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith at length in this vein. But then she turns on a dime, quotes Brigham Young, and immediately nothing that Brigham Young says can be taken at face value. Nothing that Brigham Young says actually represents how he really feels. You see, it's this double standard, which has no methodological basis for such a distinction. Everything Joseph and Hiram say is absolutely what they believe. Nothing Brigham Young says is absolutely what he believes. Now, this audio is several minutes long. I play it in its entirety in order to make this point because I think it's an important point to make. Play the tape. But if you look at how Joseph and Hiram viewed women, read Hiram's letters to Mary when he's in prison, Joseph's letters with Emma, like Joseph relied on Emma so much with his business dealings, with his decisions. She was a true counselor to him. And not the case with Brigham Young. So it's hard to choose which quotes to share. There are so many, but um, I just grabbed a few. I tried to do ones that I haven't read before. I know I've read this one once in one of my many episodes, but I just think it's important to get a sense for the difference between these people. So this is this is a polygamist, if you want to understand, right? This is Brigham Young, September 21st, 1856. It's Journal of Discourses, Volume 4, pages 51 through 57. Now my proposition, a lot of you will be familiar with this one. It is more particular for my sisters as it, is frequent, as it is frequently happening that women will say they are unhappy. Men will say, my wife, though a mo- most excellent woman, has not seen a happy day since I took my second wife. No, not a happy day for a year, says one. And another has not seen a happy day for five years. It is said that women are tied down and abused, that they are misused and have not had the liberty they ought to have had, that many of them are waiting through a perfect flood of tears because of the conduct of some men together with their own folly. I wish my own women to understand that what I am going to say is for them as well as others. And I want those who are here to tell their sisters, yes, all the women of this community, and then write it back to the States and do as you please with it. I am going to give you from this time to the sixth day of October next for reflection that you may determine whether you wish to stay with your husbands or not. And then I am going to set every woman at liberty and say to them, now go your way, my women with the rest, go your way. Now, this some people honestly interpret this to see, look how liberal Brigham Young was. He would just let anyone have a divorce. Remember that this is under the threat of so many things. These women had no means of protection or being provided for. We always use that as an excuse for polygamy, right? To provide for the women. No, that's prostitution. But anyway, the other thing is um, these women had been taught that their entire salvation and exaltation was based on their marriage, these polygamous marriages, right? So you're giving them the freedom to damn themselves is what you're doing. It's kind of like when um, the... The polygamists now threaten the young men, straighten up or you're free to leave, right? And they become a lost boy. What, like, that's, that's a great option, isn't it? Do not misread this to think he's being generous here. So once again, when Joseph and Hiram are quoted by Ms. Stone, they mean everything they say. But when Brigham Young is quoted by Ms. Stone, we have to be careful not to think that he's being as generous as he is trying to appear to be, because he's really not being that generous. You see the double standard at play here. 
Her next argument has to do with the same methodological problem, is that polygamy was instituted in such a messy fashion. It was a complete catastrophe. And her argument is that if Joseph Smith had actually been the one to institute polygamy, it would have been a lot smoother. It would have run better. It would not have been such a complete disaster. And here she is making that argument by the following leaders. And I think that Joseph, as the one, the originator of the doctrine, the originator of the scriptures, could have made it make a lot, lot more sense. If he had been the author of it, it would have been better. I don't mean things would be, I mean, it would have been done better. It would make more sense. It would have a through line and have some, some stability and something that made sense. So anyway, those are the quick things I wanted to go into. So once again, we see Ms. Stone's subjectivity at play. Joseph Smith was the master organizer and implementer, apparently, of God's commands and doctrines. And therefore, if he had been instructed by God to implement polygamy, it would have been done a lot better. Apparently, Ms. Stone is not taking into account the incredible catastrophes that Joseph Smith implemented in the name of the Lord. And a couple of things come to mind. First off, the Kirtland Bank disaster, where Joseph Smith was commanded by God to organize a bank, and other people were commanded by God through Joseph Smith to support the bank, to contribute to the bank, to get this bank off the ground, and then it folded within a year, as we all know. Also, there's the example of Zion's camp, where God told Joseph Smith to collect a number of men to go with him down to Missouri from Ohio and redeem the lands that had been taken from them by the mobs. Well, they made the trip, but when they got there, they folded, they turned around, and they came back with their tails between their legs because it just wasn't going to happen. My understanding is the history behind it is that Joseph Smith had thought the governor of Missouri, the one before Boggs, Governor Dunklin, I believe his name was, was going to help support the Mormons coming back to retrieve their lands. By the time they got there, they found that that was not the case. And without the governor's support, apparently God's promise to fight their battles for them melted like the dew before the rising sun. And they went back to Ohio. So to argue that if to argue that if polygamy had been instituted by Joseph Smith it would have been instituted a lot better than it was seems to also melt before the rising sun when considered in the historical perspective of other projects that were instituted and implemented by Joseph Smith. I want to insert here another problem that I find in Ms. Stone's methodology is that what she will do, and I'm not going to play all the sound clips, please listen to it if you like, and I encourage you to, but her position is that there are two people who are invested in portraying Joseph Smith falsely as a polygamist. One are the people who are actually practicing polygamy, and the other are the people who are not practicing polygamy, but they really hate Joseph Smith's guts, so they're going to call him a polygamist just because they hate him. This is her way of trying to deal with the problem of the fact that there are people on both sides of the coin. There are polygamists who say Joseph Smith practiced polygamy, and they have a motive there for those people that they're just trying to chalk it up to Joseph Smith to support their own practice later on. But there's also these other people who are not practicing polygamy who are still calling Joseph Smith a polygamist. Well, from her point of view, they are just saying it because they want to get Joseph Smith, and they'll say any kind of lie to get him. And polygamy is a handy lie, so they will accuse him of polygamy. The thing that is completely absent in the methodology, as I'm hearing it from Ms. Stone, 
is any space for a person who was a faithful member who believed Joseph Smith was a prophet, who then found out about polygamy, often through direct evidence, in other words, Joseph Smith going to them and asking for their wife or their daughter to be his plural wife, and then rejecting it. And that is the point at which they part ways with Joseph Smith. That is the cause for them to become antagonistic to Joseph Smith. Such people as William Law, his wife Jane Law, who gave affidavits in the Nauvoo Expositor when it was published on June 7, 1844, to expose, that's why it was called the Expositor, to expose what was really going on behind the scenes with Joseph Smith and his polygamy. Well, from Ms. Stone's point of view, they just hate Joseph Smith, so they're going to call him a polygamist, and they're going to make these accusations. What she doesn't leave any room for is a person such as William Law or Jane Law or a host of other people who rejected the idea of plural marriage, and that is why they came out in opposition to Joseph Smith. They're not mad at him for some other vague and unspecified reason, and therefore they're going to latch on to the polygamy allegation. No, it's the polygamy that made them antagonistic to Joseph Smith in the first place. This is what she leaves no space for, is for people who were followers of Joseph Smith to get offended by his practice of polygamy, and therefore come out and accuse him of polygamy, even though they themselves refuse to engage in it. I think that is a huge lack in this particular methodology, to hold no space for those kinds of people. In fact, the publishers of the Nauvoo Expositor make it clear that they did believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet. They believed that he had translated the Book of Mormon by the gift and power of God. They believed he was God's prophet. They believed in all these revelations he received in Kirtland, Ohio, up to a certain point to where he started introducing polygamy. And that's the point at which they said, no, this is a bridge too far. This is not from God. We believe you were a prophet before this and up to this point, but now no deal. God's not behind this. You, sir, are a fallen prophet. And those words are published in the Nauvoo Expositor itself. So we know that these aren't people who are just trying to take down Joseph Smith because they think he's been a hoax from the beginning. They think he was a true prophet in the beginning, but now he's become a fallen prophet. Throughout her two-and-a-half-hour podcast, Ms. Stone talks about her beliefs in this regard having changed, that she hasn't always had this belief that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. But prior to this, she believed that Joseph Smith did practice polygamy. But in a very interesting brief clip, about 30 seconds long, she gives us to understand that even though before she changed her beliefs in this regard, she did believe that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy, but she believed it was still not from God. She says that even though she believed prior to this that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy, that it was because of his practice of polygamy that he lost God's protection and was killed at Carthage. Play the tape. Just very quickly, for those who know my story knows, they know, like, it took me a long time to change my mind. I actually was at pretty much complete peace with Joseph being a polygamist. As I said, I have publicly changed my mind many, many times. And for a long time, I knew, once I knew that polygamy was not of God, I just thought, okay, that's why Joseph lost his spiritual protection and was allowed to be killed. And that worked for me just fine. I, I was perfectly comfortable with my polygamy lenses on, right? Now, this statement from Ms. Stone, although it does not bear directly on whether Joseph Smith practiced polygamy, it does give us an insight into her mindset that prior to this, she did believe that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. But when she believed that, she believed it still was not from God. 
That's why he lost God's protection because he practiced polygamy. That's why he got killed at Carthage because he practiced polygamy. So what we can intuit from this is that Miss Stone's position as to polygamy itself has not changed. She has not believed, or at least not that she says on this podcast, she doesn't say that she believed that polygamy was from God. No, she believed that Joseph Smith practiced it, but it wasn't from God, so he lost God's protection. Now she's come to the point where she does not believe that Joseph Smith practiced it because it was not from God. So her fundamental underlying position on whether polygamy was from God has not changed. All that has changed is her belief on whether Joseph Smith practiced it. Now, this very next section is very important to me because I made a discovery as I was researching for that episode on Mormonism Live about polygamy and Joseph Smith's practice of it, which ended up being apparently of some significance, by which I mean it sounds like it hadn't really been focused on or noticed much before this. And this has to do with the three affidavits that were published in the Nauvoo Expositor by William Law, by Jane Law, and by Austin Cowles. And I talked about it briefly on the Mormonism Live episode, but because it was so well received by Lindsay Hansen Park and others, I went ahead and I did a much more thorough and in-depth presentation of the argument in a subsequent Radio Free Mormon podcast from a couple of weeks ago, and that podcast was called The Polygamy Controversy. I'm going to refer you to that episode for the details. But basically, here is the argument. The polygamy deniers have a real problem with section 132. That's why Ms. Stone's podcast is called 132 Problems, because there's a huge problem with section 132, and that is if Joseph Smith wrote it, if Joseph Smith claimed it was revelation, if Joseph Smith taught what is in section 132 about plural marriage, then their position that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy goes up in smoke. Therefore, they have to say that Joseph Smith never wrote this, he never had anything to do with section 132, and that Brigham Young, eight years after Joseph Smith dies, Joseph Smith dies in 1844. In 1852, Brigham Young now pulls out of his desk this revelation and says that Joseph Smith received it, and he backdates it to Joseph Smith. This is what the polygamy deniers claim, that section 132 was not contemporary with Joseph Smith. It was written later and then pawned off on Joseph Smith in order to try and create this fraud that Joseph Smith actually practiced and taught as revelation from God, polygamy. So that's their argument. That's why section 132 has to be a later production. It cannot be and should not be contemporary with Joseph Smith. So what I did in my podcast was I went through an analysis of the three affidavits that were published in the Nauvoo Expositor. Now, the fact that they're published in a newspaper with the date of June 7th, 1844 is critical because typically what the polygamy deniers will do, if anything is just written down in a journal, in a Bible, we'll get to that, believe me, in a few minutes, they will say that if something's written down in any document, and by that I mean in handwriting, it doesn't make any difference what it is that supports the idea that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy, well, they wave their hand at that and they just say, oh, well, that was just put into it later on by Brigham Young and his cronies. They wrote it back into these documents. That's their explanation for everything. But they can't make that argument for something that was printed 
in a newspaper. Because even Brigham Young, with all of his evil machinations and his flying monkeys at his beck and call, can't go back in time and change what was published in a newspaper. That is something that has to stand and has to be evidence of what was written as of the date that the newspaper was published. Okay, so that's one avenue of argument that is not available to them. And that's why this Nauvoo Expositor and the three affidavits it contains are so important. Because what William Law and Jane Law and Austin Cowell say is that each of them saw and read, or at least heard read, the revelation on plural marriage, that section 132, that pesky section 132, and they all write down what it is that they remembered reading from it or hearing about it. And between the three affidavits, what I show is that every salient material aspect of section 132 is found in these three affidavits. In other words, something that was in all material respects identical to section 132 existed at least as of June 7, 1844, which is the date of the Nauvoo Expositor in which these three affidavits are published, something existed prior to that date that matches in all material respects what we have today in our Doctrine and Covenants as section 132. Now that is a very, very difficult problem for the polygamy deniers to get around. And I was surprised to find that Ms. Stone gave it extremely short shrift. She barely made a mention of it. Basically, she just waves her hand at it and then proceeds with her other comments. But I do want to play that part of her two and a half hour podcast where she spends a couple of minutes dealing with this issue that is fatal to the polygamy denier's position. Play the tape. So um, anyway, okay, then both sides also point to similarities between Section 132 and other sources like the law's testimonies or um, Clayton's um, books, <laughs> Clayton's diaries, right? And so let me restate just in case it wasn't clear. That isn't surprising to me because I believe there was a revelation about eternal marriage that wasn't put published because it was meant to be held um, private and sacred. You know, it was not meant to be published abroad. As Hiram said, that was read to the High Council. I also think there were things going around as they completely continually tried to um, to put down that uh, had that were said to be done and taught by Joseph Smith and that he was constantly denying. So it's not at all surprising that these ideas show up, right? And so we can get in later to talk about motives of these different people, but I just want to say that's not surprising to me. That that's exactly what like I I think that makes the most sense of everything. When I look at it, Occam's razor tells me that's the most likely scenario until I see more evidence that gives me a better scenario. That's what I think it was. And so um, anyway, they were obviously not afraid to change, um, to change things, to change revelations, to change, you know, Brigham talked about his historical team getting everything to fit the new order of things. So I think that that's what's happening. Things were being done behind Joseph's back during his life and without his authorization after his death. Like, you know, it's not, not very good. So so if I'm understanding Ms. Stone's argument correctly, she does agree with Austin Cowles and other people who were members of the Nauvoo High Council that on August 12, 1843, Hiram Smith 
came to the council with a revelation from Joseph Smith, and he read it in its entirety in front of the council. Now, several people who were members of the council who heard that revelation read later said under oath that what that revelation was about was about plural marriage. And these are said by members of the council who went west with Brigham Young to continue practicing polygamy. And that's also said by members of the council who left the church and who did not agree with the practice of polygamy. But in a surprising turn of events, Ms. Stone thinks that even though there was a revelation, we have no idea what was in the revelation. It said something about celestial marriage, but it was very secret, and so it was kept from the knowledge of the public. It was kept secret, it was kept safe, it was not supposed to be disseminated, which sounds kind of, I don't know, a lot like the plural marriage revelation. But she is absolutely certain that this revelation that she admits existed, that this had nothing to do with plural marriage, even though everybody who left any kind of testimony about what it was they read in this revelation or heard read in this revelation all say it had to do with plural marriage. So interestingly, Ms. Stone is convinced that this revelation existed, but that it had nothing to do with plural marriage, even though every single person who heard it read or read it themselves said it had to do with plural marriage. In other words, Miss Stone doesn't know what this revelation said, but whatever it was, it wasn't what everybody else who actually read the damn thing said it was. No, she has this insider knowledge that contradicts all the witnesses to the contents of this revelation. Once again, an important insight into the conspiracy theorist mindset. Oh, and by the way, where is this revelation that she says this revelation was? Well, that's disappeared. It doesn't exist anymore. We can't find it because it never existed. This is a figment of her imagination, and the figment of her imagination is created for one purpose and one purpose only, to show that Joseph and Hiram had nothing to do with plural marriage. I am once again reminded of the famous quote by Sherlock Holmes, it is a capital mistake to begin to theorize before one has all the evidence. Insensibly, one begins to twist the facts to fit the theory, instead of the theory to fit the facts. Now she's going to talk a little bit about John C. Bennett, who was a member of the church who was actually in the first presidency in Nauvoo. He was very close to Joseph Smith, and he got excommunicated from the church by Joseph Smith for practicing illicit sexual liaisons with female members of the church. Here's what Miss Stone has to say about John C. Bennett. And then um, the next source they talk about is John C. Bennett, right? And um, some things to know about Bennett as a source in general, and we all agree on this, right? He is a known pathological and very convincing liar. He was able to weasel his way in everywhere with anyone, he, with everyone. He was able to, you know, get it, be a member of, wasn't he a member of the first presidency as well as the mayor of Nauvoo and weasel his way into many women's beds in Nauvoo. And um, he was already a womanizer before he ever came here. So he is just problematic from top to bottom. Just a parenthetical comment that in spite of what an incredibly adept liar John C. Bennett was, one might think that God would let Joseph Smith know that he was lying before Joseph Smith added John C. Bennett as a counselor to the first presidency. Just saying. 
And I think it should go without saying that if God really is inspiring Joseph Smith and Joseph Smith is indeed a prophet, it would have been the decent thing for God to let Joseph Smith know that Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball and all these other top leaders in his church were practicing polygamy behind his back and without his knowledge. Again, just saying. The thing that's interesting is a lot of what he did had a lot in common. I mean, he, again, he had the same goals as um, the other the other side that wanted to have Joseph be a polygamist as well. So I, I kind of, this is funny, but I can't help wonder if there was maybe some sort of collusion. You know, um, they were, what, what Bennett was doing wasn't all that far off from what many of the other elders were doing behind Joseph's back. So just like I wonder about, like, you know, my strange conspiracy brain just wonders if there happen to be conversations going on about, hey, I'll do a podcast on this topic and you do a podcast on this topic because we have to get rid of the Joseph um, polygamy scenario. Oh, and here are some sources you can use. Oh, and by the way, you have to say but to me, I haven't mean just one. Like there are just a lot of crazy similarities. I played this part of the clip because the conspiratorial mindset does not limit itself to history. It can also extend itself to current events. And simply because Bill Real and I happened to do a podcast about this very subject, which was prompted by a phone call from the previous week. And we talk about this subject and we mention some of the same things that Brian Hales says on a podcast that he did. It may have been the day after. I haven't actually watched it because it mentions a couple of the same things that we mention on our podcast. Immediately, that conspiratorial mindset starts thinking about a conspiracy between us and Brian Hales and sharing information back and forth. And this is how we should approach it. Well, I suppose it's possible, but I can guarantee you that did not happen. I have had no communication with Brian Hales on the subject. We have never communicated in my life, as far as I can recall. And no, this is just what we call a coincidence. But by the way, it's not just a random coincidence because both of the podcasts, ours and Brian Hales, responding to the nonsense that people like Ms. Stone are spouting about Joseph Smith not practicing polygamy. So the coincidence is a product of her own podcast, and yet she sees it as a conspiracy between Brian Hales and Mormonism Live in order to get her in some way, to refute her, to attack her in some way. So that's why I played this clip. But the clip goes on. I'll continue playing it at this point. That I wonder if there are ever conversations. I don't know. Maybe not. Same thing. I wonder if there ever were some kind of collaborations, I guess is a better word here. But um, anyway, I think that it's interesting that he does have the initials and the wedding dates. That's, I think, as or the um, not just some of the some of the initials of the weddings with the p- person who performed the ceiling. I think that is interesting. Yeah, there's, you know, I have to think about that hard. But when I take this other complete body of evidence and compare it to this, I it's kind of like this. It's like when you watch a magician on the stage like saw their assistant in half right and then um and then she comes back out of the box and it's whole from all of my experience i know that women aren't sawed in half and then in a bo- in boxes and put back together so my brain starts going mm, i wonder how the magician did that not like 
oh my word, he's magical and he just sawed a woman in half, right? So I do have that bias now. I confess, I have that bias now. So when I see something like these affidavits, I'm like, this seems way more likely to me, any of these scenarios. So I'll share a couple of them with you because I I would say that with, with this bias, the, proving the children is a lot harder, right? So what I actually think is the most likely case here is that John Bennett did seduce many women and was perhaps, if not colluding, at least collaborating with many of the men. I want to break in here again to this clip from Ms. Stone to make this observation that Joseph Smith found out that John C. Bennett was practicing sexual exploits with members, female members of the LDS church. And for whatever reason, when Joseph Smith found out about that, he excommunicated John C. Bennett, even though he was a member of the First Presidency and even though he was the mayor of Nauvoo. Joseph Smith had no problem putting his foot down and exercising ecclesiastical excommunication on members who were not towing the line and not doing what it was that he told them to do or doing what he thought was inappropriate. So my question is this. If we know this about Joseph Smith, which we do because of the example of the excommunication of John C. Bennett, how is it that Brigham Young and Willard Richards and Heber C. Kimball and all this assorted crew of high-ranking officials in the LDS Church, who according to the polygamy deniers were practicing polygamy behind Joseph Smith's back, how did they escape? being excommunicated. Are we really to believe that they were doing this without Joseph Smith's knowledge? Let's get real for a minute. Joseph Smith was the prophet of the church. People didn't come to Nauvoo because of Brigham Young to follow him. They didn't come to Nauvoo to follow Willard Richards or Heber C. Kimball. They may have been missionaries whose message they accepted, but they came to Nauvoo because they believed that Joseph Smith was the prophet of God. Joseph Smith had eyes and ears everywhere in Nauvoo. And if anybody had gotten wind of members of the Quorum of the Twelve or anybody else practicing polygamy and Joseph Smith wasn't part of it, you can bet Joseph Smith would have heard of it. It is impossible for me to imagine any other scenario in the real world where that would not have happened. And if and when that had happened and Joseph Smith gets word that Heber C. Kimball and Brigham Young are practicing polygamy, he would have done the exact same thing to them that he did to John C. Bennett they would have been excommunicated. And so the very fact that they were not excommunicated shows to me that they were not practicing anything that Joseph Smith did not agree with and adopt and probably instituted in the first place. Going on with this lengthy clip from Ms. Stone. He had dirt on them, right? It's like Epstein <laughs> and Ghislaine Maxwell, right? Like, you're going to do what we want you to do because we've got dirt on you. I think that that is a far more likely scenario. They claim in the Mormon discussions that, that he used the initials so that perhaps he wouldn't be sued. I think that's ridiculous. It wasn't the women who would sue. It was Joseph Smith who would sue, and he had no problem naming him, right? In fact, we do have cases when Joseph Smith sued over libel. I'm sorry, I have to break in. But once again, Miss Stone is making what I consider to be a faulty conclusion. While acknowledging that John C. Bennett puts in his expose, which he wrote after leaving the church, after being excommunicated from the church, and now ostensibly at least giving the dirt on Joseph Smith, John C. Bennett says that Joseph Smith was married to 
all of these women, but he only gives the initials of these women. And Ms. Stone says that the reason that he gave the initials wasn't because he was afraid of being sued by the women. He was afraid of being sued by Joseph Smith. Well, it doesn't make any difference if he put the initials down or the whole names down when it comes to being sued by Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith has a cause of action against him for libel, regardless of whether he uses the entire names or not. So that's a conclusion that I find untenable. It makes no sense whatsoever to me. Continuing with this clip from Ms. Stone. And um, I think that it's that they just haven't come up with any good explanation of why he just used the initials. I think it was to like, like send a message, you know, one way or the other. Like I've got your back, you've got mine, or I'm going to out you, or whatever it would be. So if I'm understanding this correctly, Miss Stone says that John C. Bennett uses the initials of Joseph Smith's plural wives in John C. Bennett's expose in order to send a message to the other apostles who are practicing plural marriage behind Joseph Smith's back that I've got dirt on you, so you need to have my back. The thing that makes this unpersuasive, fanciful though it is, at its inception, this explanation, what makes it untenable is that it's being published in a book that John C. Bennett wrote after already being excommunicated. So what subliminal message is there to send to the apostles that I've got dirt on you, so you need to have my back and I'll have your back? It's already been blown. There's nothing more that can be done to John C. Bennett. So why it is that he would be using initials of plural wives to send some sort of message to the apostles who are practicing plural marriage behind Joseph Smith's back that I've got your back and you've got mine makes no sense whatsoever, at least to me. But before I leave this example, I want to underscore once more that this is a facet of the conspiracy theorist mindset, that any evidence against your position can be controverted simply by pulling some kind of fanciful, made-up explanation, unrooted to any kind of historical evidence, out of your arse and saying, this is the way it happened. But not only that. Not only do fanciful theories rule the day with conspiracy theorists, there is also this element that they don't even think one step beyond their fanciful theory to see how it doesn't make sense and it would not work in the real world. It's almost as if they're just trying to come up with any kind of explanation they can, wave away the problem, and then go on to the next issue as quickly as possible so that people won't have time to think about how unlikely and impossible the explanation they just gave to the prior problem really is. Let's go on now with what else Miss Stone has to say in this rather long audio clip. That seems possible to me. We we have sources, including Brigham Young, that tell us that John Bennett was having an affair with Sarah Pratt, right? And so there's there's a lot going on there. Again, I'm not the ultimate expert on this. So if I get some, you know, if someone wants to add something, that's great. I would like to study these things more. I've put a lot of, I, I think I've studied more than 99% of the people who are screaming at me that Joseph was a polygamist, because I don't consider studying being reading the books that people prepared. I consider it getting into the actual sources and really examining the evidence. So anyway, that's what I think was the most likely explanation. I also think... And so with all the books and all the research and all the time and hours that Ms. Stone has been studying this issue, she comes to the conclusion 
that an impossible explanation for why it is that John C. Bennett wrote the initials of Joseph Smith's plural wives in his book. An explanation that we have already seen does not make any sense in the real world. Nevertheless, she comes to the conclusion that that is the most likely explanation. So when you have a person who's taking an explanation which is virtually impossible in the real world and coming to the conclusion that that explanation is the most likely explanation to be true, you know you're dealing with a conspiracy theorist. Going on. It's not hard to see that when these later reminiscences were coming out, when the um, the um, storyline, the narrative was being crafted in Utah, they had full access to everything that John Bennett had published. It's not that hard to make some of the details match. So we'll um, anyway leave it there. I know that won't be convincing to some of you, but like I said, you've got a lot bigger problems to solve on your side. And to me, I think it is pretty convincing. The fact of how problematic Bennett is as a source should give everybody some concern who wants to rest their hat on him as evidence. So anyway, we'll leave it there. But um, Martha Brotherton, even though her story comes through Bennett. So from Ms. Stone's point of view, it is the historians who believe that the historical record suggests strongly, in fact, almost incontrovertibly, that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. We are the people who have the real problems. She doesn't have any problems. Her theory is totally supported by the evidence. But first off, once again now, in this clip we just played, first off, she's going to say how problematic John C. Bennett is as a source But now she's going to go to the Martha Bretherton affidavit, which appears in John C. Bennett's book. And she's going to say she believes the Martha Bretherton affidavit. So once again, there's a double standard of interpretation, even with the same person. We've already seen that everything that Brigham Young says is suspect. Everything that Joseph and Hiram Smith say is totally believable and totally reflective of what they really believe. We've already seen that point of view and that double standard as regards different people, she's going to apply the same double standard to one person, John C. Bennett, because even though he's a total liar, she's going to believe this Martha Brotherton affidavit that appears in his book is true. Going on with the tape. We'll leave it there. But um, Martha Brotherton, even though her story comes through Bennett, I do believe her story. And it makes me so angry. I really like, oh, I just want to go to battle for Martha Brotherton. I hate what happened to her. And I think it matters that we have the right perpetrators, right? That we ha- accuse the right people. So again, it's it's covered in Rob's video, but I'll just explain really quickly my thinking. And a couple of things, when you read through Bro- uh, Martha Brotherton's affidavit, a couple of things become very clear. She had never met Joseph Smith. She'd never seen Joseph Smith. She didn't know who he was. There's this really weird time crunch that seems to be happening, this full court press that's almost like, hurry, hurry, decide. Maybe because they only had the free use of the store for that long until Joseph would get back from wherever maybe he was. This is what seems like the most likely scenario to me. When I hear Joseph Smith, when I hear Martha Brotherton's report of what Joseph Smith said, it does not sound like Joseph Smith. This is just a small thing, and I don't want people to make fun of it. I'm just throwing it out there because it's the easiest one to explain. But I have read through quite a bit, and I've never heard Joseph Smith call anyone sis, right? He calls her sis, and he's kind of got this 
attitude. It's weird. I think that Brigham and Heber had access to the store and there was a third collaborator who was pretending to be Joseph Smith. And yes, you can say that's insane. That's crazy. I think it makes perfect sense and it fits so well because it's really hard to make sense of this one. I know we talk about the pattern and it fits into the pattern, but again, please consider that is circular reasoning. You believe the pattern exists, so you see the pattern because you know it exists, so you think that the pattern gives these things more credibility. I strongly disagree with you and I think you should consider that level of circular reasoning and if there are other things that would be better explanations. Again, I'd like to dig into this more and I recommend recommend Rob's video, but I think it's worth considering. It doesn't convince me. I think that both Martha Brotherton and Joseph Smith were telling the truth. I think Martha Brotherton was telling the truth in her affidavit, and I think Joseph Smith was telling the truth when he was like, I didn't do this. I cannot figure out why she's saying I did this. I believe both of them because I think that there were other people causing problems. It's like, you know, when there are those people that just cause problems and everyone's kind of a victim of them because they sow all this dispute, they triangulate everyone, right? So anyway, it makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that for Martha Brotherton's sake, we need to hold the right men accountable and not blame the man who I think was innocent. So the first thing to note is that without any methodological basis, Miss Stone goes from disbelieving anything that John C. Bennett writes in his book to believing the Martha Brotherton affidavit, even though it is published in his book. Having made that observation, let's go on to what she does with this affidavit. Now, for those of you who do not know, Martha Brotherton was a young lady who came to Nauvoo, and in her affidavit, she says that she was approached one day about three weeks after she arrived by Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, and ultimately by Joseph Smith with whom she had a protracted face-to-face -face conversation behind closed doors where Joseph Smith is attempting to convince her to marry Brigham Young as one of Brigham Young's plural wives. She signed this affidavit in St. Louis, Missouri on July 13, 1842. We know she had been in Nauvoo about three weeks at that time because that is how she opens her affidavit. I had been at Nauvoo near three weeks during which time my father's family received frequent visits from Elders Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball, two of the Mormon apostles. Now to start off with, Joseph Smith is the prophet of the Restoration. He is the reason people are joining the church. He is the reason people are gathering to Nauvoo because of Joseph Smith. They're not going there because they think Brigham Young is a prophet. They're not going there because they think Heber C. Kimball is a prophet. They may accept their message as missionaries, to them where they are teaching about the Book of Mormon and they're teaching about Joseph Smith being a prophet, but they are not joining the church because of Brigham Young and because of Heber C. Kimball or because of anybody else except for Joseph Smith. So typically when new converts arrive on the docks at Nauvoo, Joseph Smith goes to personally greet them as they come on shore. And if he were not there, to greet them personally, one can imagine that the first order of business, or at least the second order of business, once you get yourself established in Nauvoo, would be to find Joseph Smith and to greet the prophet, to see the man that caused you to make this journey and this sacrifice and this complete disruption and change of your life course. You would want to see Joseph Smith. Now, the reason I bring all this up is because 
Ms. Stone's explanation for Martha Brotherton's affidavit is not to dispute that she's telling the truth. Her explanation is that Heber C. Kimball and Brigham Young brought in a ringer for Joseph Smith. It wasn't really Joseph Smith that was talking to Martha Brotherton, at least not according to Ms. Stone. It was some other guy that they told her was Joseph Smith. This is a rather long affidavit, and you can find it easily online. But let me read to you a little bit about the discussion and conversation face-to-face that Martha says she had with Joseph Smith. This is picking up in the middle of the affidavit. Well, Martha, said Joseph, just go ahead and do as Brigham wants you to. He is the best man in the world, except me. Oh, said Brigham, because Brigham was present too. Oh, said Brigham, then you are as good. Yes, said Joseph. Well, said Young, we believe Joseph to be a prophet. I have known him near eight years and always found him the same. Yes, said Joseph, and I know that this is lawful and right before God. And if there is any sin in it, I will answer for it before God. And I have the keys of the kingdom. And whatever I bind on earth is bound in heaven. And whatever I loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And if you will accept of Brigham, you shall be blessed. God shall bless you. And my blessing shall rest upon you. And if you will be led by him, you will do well. For I know Brigham will take care of you. And if he don't do his duty to you, come to me and I will make him. And if you do not like it in a month or two, come to me and I will make you free again, and if he turns you off, I will take you on. And it goes on and on in this vein with this face-to-face conversation that Martha Brotherton has with Joseph Smith. So here's my first problem with this fanciful story that Ms. Stone makes up to explain how it is that Joseph Smith really was not involved in this because it was somebody else pretending to be Joseph Smith. Number one, the odds are that Martha Brotherton knew what Joseph Smith looked like before this meeting three weeks after she arrives at Nauvoo. Number two, even if she didn't, Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball have to know that she doesn't know what Joseph Smith looks like. Because if she knows what Joseph Smith looks like and they present somebody who's not Joseph Smith pretending to be Joseph Smith, that plan is going to blow up in a mushroom-shaped cloud on the spot. But let's say that all of this is true. Let's assume for the sake of argument that this fanciful theory, which is unsupported by any kind of evidence, is true. And that really, this is not Joseph Smith. This is someone else. So what happens as soon as she leaves the room, whether she accepts it or whether she doesn't, and she does not accept this proposal by Brigham Young? What happens after she leaves the room and walks around and goes to, I don't know, church? And here's Joseph Smith preaching and sees Joseph Smith and says, wait a second. That's Joseph Smith. That's not the same guy who was talking to me behind closed doors with Brigham Young. And then what happens? Then she tells Joseph Smith. And the entire escapade of Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball and all their machinations get brought to light and they get excommunicated. Just like John C. Bennett. That's exactly what would happen. And Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball would have enough intelligence, which doesn't take a lot, to figure out what would happen. So I'm saying that this story that Ms. Stone has created is not only unlikely at the outset, it is something destined to failure and would have failed if indeed it had been done the way that Ms. Stone says it was done with a ringer for Joseph Smith. This is the kind of motivated reasoning that we find throughout the polygamy deniers' responses to evidence that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. Come up with any kind of story, no matter how crazy it is, no matter how unworkable it is, no matter how impossible it would be to pull off, say that must be how it happened, and then rush off to something else. I've already talked about that before. This is just another example of that same kind of thing. 
The obvious solution to this predicament is to posit that Martha Bretherton was actually blind, and that's why she could not tell that this person who was representing himself as Joseph Smith was not Joseph Smith. But maybe I go too far there. I should not be giving the polygamy deniers any ideas. And now the last issue that Ms. Stone brings up, to which I will respond today. She goes on and on a bit after this talking about land deeds. I'm not going to talk about land deeds in Nauvoo. I'm going to leave that to Bill Real to respond to if he wants to. That's just another quagmire. I'm not going to go there. I've already invested enough time, enough energy in these rabbit trails to suit me, and I don't plan on going any further than I already have in this episode. But the last thing that she talks about that we brought up in our episode on Mormonism Live is the entries in the Melissa Lott Family Bible. Now, the Lot Family Bible is a typical Bible of the age. And back in old days, and even not such old days, there were a number of pages that were left blank at the beginning of a Bible in order for families to put down their family history. And generally, that involved births, deaths, and marriages. And in this Bible, there are pages that are provided for that purpose. They are divided down the center so that there are two columns. But other than that, the page is entirely blank. And actually, Ms. Stone does a pretty good job of describing the nature of the problem with the Lot Family Bible, and I will defer to her and play a clip from her in order to describe the problem, but then go on to allow her the opportunity to describe her fanciful and definitely creative solution to the problem that is presented by the Lot Family Bible man who I think was innocent. So um, anyway, now this is one that I did dig into because it was one that threw me for a loop. So I'm super excited to share it with you now. The Melissa Lott Bible was the next issue they brought up. I hope everyone is aware that I'm going through systematically issue by issue, not skipping anything so that you can't accuse me of cherry picking or proof texting. I really do want to cover each of these issues. So that's, that's what I'm trying to do. I just, I can't elucidate all of it here. So I'm referring you to other sources on some of them. But I hadn't seen anything done on the Melissa Lopp Bible, and I was like, ooh, that looks bad. So... I'm going to skip ahead here a bit, just for brevity's sake. This is the family Bible of Melissa Lott's family. She was the oldest daughter of Cornelius and Permelia Lott. And um, you'll see, it's really interesting. I, I dug into this a ton, so I'm going to try and zoom it in and let you see. At the top, it has the wedding, the initial wedding when Cornelius and Permelia got married. My speculation that it's easy to just assume this is that this was maybe a wedding gift, and they recorded their marriage. Many years later, when the next entry was made that says Cornelius Lott married to Pramilia Darrow for time and eternity, September the 20th, 1843 by Hiram Smith, uh, by President Hiram Smith with seal of President Joseph Smith. That's where it gets really interesting because right after that, it says September the 20th, um, C and P Lott um, oh, Cornelius Lott and Pramilia Lott gave their daughter Melissa to wife. And so that's that's the damning evidence right there because they gave Melissa to wife that day, the day that they were sealed, and it doesn't have a groom listed. And then we have our narrative now of Joseph's secret poly polygamy. So his name couldn't be listed even in a family Bible 
because I guess that the mobbers were going around opening people's Bibles to find who, if anyone was married to Joseph, you know, like we have Heber and um, Brigham writing letters. We have William Clayton recording all of these things in his journal about his his own self. And, I, you know, we have all of these other things, but their family Bible had to not have Joseph's name in it is the, is the scenario that we have based on this secret narrative. And then it becomes even more damning because on the next um, column at the top of it, you see it says Melissa Smith and lists her next wedding. So those two pieces of evidence look really bad. And um, I, I was like, oh, that's so interesting. What is going on there? And sure enough, you dig in and those camels sure turned into shadows. So we're going to let me let me explain a couple of things. The first things I think that are useful to do when trying to get to the bottom of this story, two things that I did is first actually look at the Bible, do, spend some time doing some basic analysis of it, both of handwriting and dates. And second, spend, I don't know, 30 minutes to an hour, maybe less, researching the Lot family on Family Search. And all of a sudden, a whole new picture emerges, and it's quite amusing. Like At this point, I want to first give Miss Stone credit for correctly stating the nature of the problem. The problem is, as she has said it, now she speaks quickly, and so it is possible that you might not have noticed something the first time around. The first entry has to do with Hiram Smith and Joseph Smith being present at the home of the parents of Melissa Lott because they are sealed by Hiram Smith, and Joseph Smith puts his seal upon it. That's reflected in the Bible. The next entry, which is now on the right column at the top, says that Melissa Smith is being married to somebody else. And this is years after, maybe one, two years after Joseph Smith is dead. So now she's being married to someone else's their plural wife. Now, if you paid attention, what you see here is contradictory motivations within the same argument. The argument that Ms. Stone makes as to why it is unlikely that the groom was not mentioned to whom Melissa Lott was married doesn't make sense because who's going to look in the family Bible to find out who she's married to, right? It doesn't make sense. But when her last name is mentioned, when she gets married to someone else a few years later and it states Melissa Smith, now that becomes suspect from the polygamy denier's perspective because it's too obvious that polygamy is being practiced. So right here on the same page of the same Bible in the same argument, we first get the argument from the polygamy deniers that it doesn't make sense to hide Joseph Smith's name as the groom of Melissa Lott because it is so obvious that polygamy is being practiced and other people are talking about it in their journals. But in the second marriage entry, where Melissa's last name is written as Melissa Smith, suddenly the first argument doesn't work. And so the argument is flipped to where, why would she put this in her Bible when it would be so obvious that she was married to Joseph Smith? The first argument is, it's not obvious enough. In the second argument, it's too obvious. These are the kind of contradictory arguments that we find in the mind and in the voice, in this case, of the polygamy deniers, and frankly, of every kind of conspiracy theorist there is. But let's go to the fanciful story that Ms. Stone creates out of whole cloth in order to try and get around the problem that this document, this family Bible document, presents to the polygamy deniers' point of view. And here is her theory in her own words. 
So we have Melissa's groomless marriage, then John's yearless marriage. In between that, we are missing Cornelius's second marriage, and we're missing, missing Melissa's second marriage that should be listed right there on February 8th, 1846. So before John's marriage, Melissa married. She became the seventh wife to the 47-year-old John Milton Bernheisel. And so she was Melissa Bernheisel. Very well established, very well known. She was married to John Bernheisel. We do have those records. And so that wasn't included in the Bible. That's interesting, right? Now, when she says that that's interesting, right? That Melissa Lott's marriage to John Bernheisel was not recorded in the Bible. What she really means is there are things that should have been recorded in the Bible that were not recorded in the Bible. That by itself is not remarkable. But she's trying to use that fact to argue that it is not remarkable that on September 20th, 1843, the Bible says that Melissa's parents gave Melissa Lott in marriage to somebody doesn't even list the name of the groom. There are no other examples of a person being married to someone and that person that they're being married to, their name is not given. She's just taking an entire marriage that apparently didn't make it into the Bible and saying that if this marriage, her marriage to John Bernheisel is not mentioned in the Bible, then it somehow makes it okay that the September 20th, 1843 entry doesn't list the name of the spouse to whom Melissa's parents give her. That is a non sequitur. It does not follow. That is an unusual situation, especially when we know that Joseph Smith was there that day, that time, and a subsequent entry lists her name as Melissa Smith. Now, Miss Stone tries to get around the significance of this by saying nobody would ever write their name down as really Miss Smith in their family Bible because, my gosh, then it could come to public notice. But Joseph Smith is not there when she's writing the subsequent entry that her name is Melissa Smith being married to somebody else, Joseph Smith is actually dead by this point. And by this point, it would be a badge of honor to be one of Joseph Smith's plural wives. So in a family Bible, it doesn't surprise me at all that she would write down or somebody else would write down on her behalf, Melissa Smith being married to this other individual. But here comes Ms. Stone's theory as to why the information on the left side of the page, in the left column of the page and the information in the right column of the same page at the top, why that information was put in there at all. Why does it even look suspiciously like Melissa had been married to Joseph Smith? Well, she has an answer for that too. Want to hear it? Here we go. We completely skip over a marriage and then we fraudulently list Melissa Lott Bernheisel, <laughs> you could choose either of those, list her as Melissa Smith, a name that she never would have used at all and certainly wouldn't have used after her marriage to John Bernheisel. However, it is very interesting that this happened. I want to also point out that these all could have been added at any point. There's no, like, by the time Melissa Smith, that marriage is recorded, that, you know, I mean, the, these other marriages could have been added at any time. We don't know. Well, yes, we actually do know because these marriages like any family Bible, are listed in chronological order. There is not a lot of space left 
in between the entries for subsequent entries to be added and backdated and introduced into the text at a later date, nor are any of these entries cramped in their writing styles or written in the margins or have any indication that they were written at any time other than the date that was given. This is the problem that she is facing with this Bible. And simply waving your hand and saying, oh, people could go back and write things in anytime they wanted to, that is wrong. That's not thinking clearly. The problem is you can't go back and write into a family Bible on the page where they have all the marriages. You can't just go back in there and insert another marriage because there's no room to do it. You would have to cramp your writing style. You'd have to put it in the margins. You would have to do something that would give away the fact that you're writing it back in at a later date. And that evidence is not, repeat, not present in the Melissa Lott family Bible. But she goes on, because now having established without any basis and actually in contradiction of the evidence that people could go back and write in anything they wanted later, she comes up with the explanation as to how it happened. Play the tape. But it's fraudulent to claim, look, the dates are listed, so we know it was listed then, because it's really important to note what is missing. That really matters. But the thing I find interesting is like the potential reasons why this would have happened. Everything that I understand is that you had to be like, there's only one who hold the key, holds the keys, right? So the power to seal and also the power to unseal, as Brian Hales likes to say. So you had to get permission to get a divorce um, in this time period from everything I have seen. So it's really interesting to consider what might be going on here. I don't know. It. Todd Compton tells us that like Melissa's father was holding out for, um, that there were some other quarters, that, qu- quarters people quarters her that came to call and he was rude to them and brushed them off because he was holding out for like bigger keys. <laughs> and so that's where John Bernheisel came in. I don't, it's hard to know how much of Todd Compton's um, book is fiction or historical, you know, fact. It's, it, it's not very clear to me. But in any case, I have to break in here to add the observation that Ms. Stone talking about Todd Compton's work and saying that it's not clear to her which parts of Todd Compton's research are fact and which are fiction is extraordinarily rich considering the source. Going on. Um, It was not a happy marriage. She wanted out of it. And I can't help but wonder if part of the bargain, you can get out of this marriage and marry this other guy you like if we do this addition to your family Bible. Of course, purely speculative. I know I'm a big fat conspiracy theorist. I know I'm a big fat conspiracy theorist. I know I'm a big fat conspiracy theorist. So, you know, who knows? But it's an interesting thing to consider. Why was this listed in the Bible? It looks to me like it was a very intentional effort to plant evidence, to create evidence that Melissa then knew to go immediately to get when she had to prove that she'd been married to Joseph Smith. Miss Stone speaks about Melissa Lott's subsequently going directly to the family Bible to find evidence that she was married to Joseph Smith, as if that's ridiculous. Where else is Melissa Lott supposed to go to for evidence that she was married to Joseph Smith? They weren't handing out marriage certificates back in Nauvoo for plural wives. But the way Miss Stone sees it is that this evidence was intentionally backdated and planted in the Melissa Lott family Bible so that decades later she could run to that Bible because she knew the evidence was planted there, that's why it had been planted there all along, I guess, and produce it and say, ha-ha, I was married to Joseph Smith. Now, more problematic than this is even if we were to assume that she is correct in her supposition 
that John Bernheisel, a subsequent husband of Melissa Lott, said, oh, you don't like me. You want a divorce from me. You like this other guy. You want me to grant you a divorce? Okay, I'll grant you a divorce, but only on condition that you go back to your Bible now and you introduce all of this information about Joseph Smith. You plant the evidence, right? And once again, this is years after Joseph Smith has died. The first problem with that theory is that it won't work because there are no spaces that would have been left that could have been filled with this backdated information, which Ms. Stone hypothesizes existed. There's going to be no room. Are we to say that there was a place that was left in the left column, a big space, so this information could be backdated and put in after the other information was put in. And then at the top of the right column, there's another space that was left so that that information could be put back in when John Bernheisel traded her her divorce so that Melissa Lott could marry this other guy that she liked. It doesn't work. And this is another problem with the conspiracy theorist mindset. They come up with an explanation, but they don't bother to take it one step further and see whether it would even be possible to have that work in the real world. This is one such example. The second problem is that even if we assume that she's correct about John Bernheisel, and even if they could go back and these spaces were left with the intent, apparently, that later on they're going to want to put in information about Joseph Smith's polygamy, even if all that were true, which it obviously is not, but even if it were, why doesn't John Bernheisel, if his intent is to have her write back in evidence that she was married to Joseph Smith, why doesn't he make it more clear? If that's what he were doing, he wouldn't have the entry say that Melissa Lott's parents gave her in marriage to no groom listed. It would have said Melissa Lott's parents gave Melissa Lott in marriage to Joseph Smith. I mean, if you're going to fraudulently backdate something, even if there were a space left for it, which there wouldn't have been, but if you're going to fraudulently backdate something to insert evidence in the record, make the evidence good evidence. Don't make it look just suspicious. Make it hard evidence. And this is another reason why I think her entirely fabricated narrative about what happened with John Bernheisel and trading the information being put in her Bible in exchange for giving her a divorce makes zero sense. Not in the real world. But she goes on. It's even better than that. According to her, because she came up with this fanciful theory, which is not supported by anything in history and is contradicted by the historical record, she now says that this piece of evidence, which she had not heard of before, our podcast, she's investigated it, and now it goes from being evidence that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy to evidence that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. This is the kind of conspiracy alchemy that these theorists do. If you don't believe me, I'll play the tape. You can hear it in Ms. Stone's own words. I um, I chalk that one. I mean, if you guys want to keep it in the pile of evidence of Joseph's polygamy, go ahead. To me, it pretty clearly just swapped over to the pile, the growing, quickly growing pile of manufactured evidence. That is the end of my response to Ms. Stone's podcast, her two and a half hour podcast. I tried to get this in under two and a half hours. I think I'm going to succeed, but not by much. And that's not responding to everything that she said. This is a representative sample of her line of reasoning, her argumentation, and why it is that even evidence that shows, or at least indicates strongly that Joseph Smith was practicing polygamy, once she's done with it, once she makes up a story, now that same evidence 
becomes for her evidence that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. I am not doing this podcast with any hope in my mind that I will ever convince Miss Stone that she is wrong. There is no evidence in the world that would convince her she is wrong. There is no argumentation or logic in the world that would convince her she is wrong. That is because she is a conspiracy theorist, and no evidence will convince them that they are wrong. Evidence that shows they're wrong, like the Melissa Lott Family Bible, will only be used by them to twist it around and show that actually they're right. So, this is not for Ms. Stone. This is not for any of her fellow polygamy deniers. This podcast is for those people who are hearing this theory that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. They're seeing books published on it. They're seeing podcasts made about it. And they're starting to think maybe there's something to it. Well, here's the bottom line on that, as far as I'm concerned. There is nothing to it. This is another case of conspiracy theorists manufacturing evidence to support their position while ignoring or co-opting evidence that contradicts their position. This has been a very frustrating exercise for me personally because can you imagine having to listen to two and a half hours of this three times in order to prepare for this podcast? But I did it because I wanted to, as fairly and accurately as possible, reflect what it is that Ms. Stone is saying and what it is she's arguing so that I can show why it is that I find it unpersuasive. I do not expect to be doing another podcast of this sort. I have followed several of the conspiracy theorists' rabbit trails in this regard out to the end to find that there's nothing there except for rabbit droppings. And I don't plan on spending any other time going after the other rabbit trails, which will indeed yield the same result. I wish Miss Stone the best in everything she does. She seems like a very nice lady. We would probably get along, although we would disagree on this subject. And anybody out there is free to believe that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy or that he didn't practice polygamy. All I'm saying is that if you are arguing and believing that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy, that is a religious belief. It is not supported by the history. And I suppose if there's any single purpose for this podcast, it's to demarcate the difference between the two. Well, that's about all for tonight. This has been an incredible experience for me in a number of ways, and a lot of that has been an extreme challenge to my patients. But this is done. It's over. I need a drink. I hope you've enjoyed it. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.